Welcome to China Tech Talk, the almost weekly discussion of technology and startups here in China. I am John Artman, editor-in-chief of Techno.com, joined as always by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel. So this week we take a look at peer-to-peer lending. I think that for some for some of you, this is probably coming a little bit out of left field. Um, it's not an area that Technode covers really, really closely. But in our uh, premium membership newsletter that's going to be going out, we are covering uh, Dian Rong specifically, as well as the broader uh, P2P lending industry. And, you know, for me personally, this is actually kind of a big deal. So um, my wife and I, we, we put some money into Dian Rong uh, a couple of years ago. And then we took it out and then we put some back in. And now we're trying to take it out. For the past like four to six months, we haven't been able to get out at all of the money that we, that, that we put in. Certainly, uh, we are getting some, but it's only coming out in, in drips of like a hundred renminbi here and and a hundred renminbi there. So this is this is kind of a a, a podcast episode that I would say is is close to my heart in a, in a certain sense. You know, Dian Rong they they looked to be a very uh, stable and uh, competent company, but uh, but as we discuss with uh, with Andrew Polk from Trivium today, um, it's not just them, of course, that's having that's having a lot of issues. Mm, yeah, I don't blame you. I did look at Dian Rong before and tried to test it out and found quite quickly, as with all of these financial products in China, you can't use them unless you're a Chinese national, right? So when you say you and your wife, I assume that's what you, you know, your your, your wife's actually doing it and you wouldn't be able, unfortunately, <laughs> but that's the way, well, even even things like using Alipay's uh, Eurobao, it's 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 all impossible as as a as a non Chinese to actually use. Exactly, exactly. So it's so it's all it's all been going through going through my wife. I mean, like when it comes to financial stuff these days, you know, I'm 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 I feel pretty lucky to be married to a Chinese woman because it makes it makes things a lot easier. I keep I keep seeing people on WeChat and WeChat groups saying they have problems with WeChat Pay, and I'm like, I got no problems. But you know whether whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to you know financial products like uh, like the Enron, that's kind of a different question. But the the, the peer to peer lending space I think is is super super interesting and it goes back uh, for uh, quite a few years. And the biggest question that I've always had is like why why is it why was it ever allowed in in the first place? And you know Andrew. You know, so he's the uh, the econ partner at uh, at Trivium China. He does a really good job of explaining, you know, what exactly is the the regulatory background behind peer to peer, and and you know, and, and he makes a good case that it actually did uh, for a time fulfill some actual some actual policy policy goals, or at least some some it helped fill a gap in in the market in the in the banking market uh, for people who they're not able to get loans so easily. Uh, but then, of course, there is that big question of you know wh- what exactly what exactly is the role of peer to peer lending in the market, and you know should should the should the government really tolerate shadow banking? Sure, and we actually spoke to the CTO of Dian Rong, the former CTO of Dian Rong, in one of our previous episodes back in 2017. So that's uh, China Tech Talk uh, episode 22, and uh, I think that would be a nice compliment to this episode if you listeners want to listen to this and then want to know more get a bit of more of a context about dm wrong then go back search back in the archives and find episode 22 yeah definitely definitely um, but yeah, so this, this this week we have Andrew Polk from um, from Trivium China. Uh, if you if you have not already, and you you are as serious a China watcher as I am, I definitely recommend uh, subscribing to their newsletter. It takes like two two three minutes to read. It's it's designed very very well, and it's got some information there that I think that you're not going to find in any other newsletter. Which is kind of my my litmus test these days when it comes to uh, to media consumption. Yeah. There's plenty of uh, newsletters coming out these days. Newsletters is the new, I don't know, it's the new blog, right? It's the new, <laughs> it's, it it's really become very hot. <laughs> yeah. And, and crowded. Uh, well, rapidly becoming crowded. Yeah. 
And and speak, speaking of which, uh, I'm going to get a quick plug in just, just really quickly. As I mentioned before, we do have our membership program uh, up and running over at TechNode. We're calling it uh, TechNode Squared uh, in you, kind of a callback to the town squares uh, because community is a large, large part of what we're trying to do. But a membership does get you our, our exclusive newsletters, would you, would you, would you guess? Uh, so we do a weekly newsletter that is uh, focusing on uh, information that you're not going to find anywhere else, information and analysis. And then we're also doing a bi-weekly ByteDance in-depth newsletter. It's actually it's actually my favorite. I, I do the weekly one, but the ByteDance is actually one of my favorites uh, because it's, you're, it's, it's a great way to keep track of you know, the, the, the most valuable startup in the entire world right now. And also uh, on May 23rd, we're having our first annual um, Emerge conference in, in Shanghai. Uh, it's going to be a one-day deep dive into the trends and forces shaping China's, China's technology, including AI ethics, blockchain regulation, digital marketing and consumer psychology, and uh, corporate innovation in China as well. But that's enough about TechNote. Let's just jump right into our interview with Andrew Polk. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. Pleasure to be here. And so one of the first questions that we'd like to ask all of our uh, guests that come on for the first time is, uh, what's your China story? So, you know, who are you? Uh, What are you doing? And how did you come here? Yeah. So I run a, a strategic advisory firm called Trivium China. We, um, started the company about two years ago. We work with multinational uh, companies and investors to to uh, figure out you know what's happening here. We kind of take a political economic view um, on on China. I'm an economist by training, been doing you know work on China for the past ten years. I first moved to Hong Kong uh, to teach back in two thousand six, two thousand seven, got interested in China, then went back to the states to do grad school and and uh, studied you know economics and China studies and uh, then moved back over to the east to to Beijing in 2011 uh, and been here ever since so so tell us more about trivium what what do you what is that what are you guys doing and and kind of you know and tell us also about the newsletter as well because that's 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 a really great uh, daily thing that you guys do oh yeah thank you um, so yeah so we basically the the idea behind trivium was that uh, we felt that especially on the political side, but really on the political economy in general, that there was space to, to do China differently, to look at China differently. And that really is about kind of, there's this idea that, you know, China is a total black box, uh, that you can't understand anything from a regulatory standpoint or a political standpoint or an economic standpoint. And we really think that actually, you know, there's a lot more information than people realize. Um, so we spend a lot of time just really digging into government policy, looking at personnel moves, looking at different markets and economic developments to to really comb through that information and make sure, you know, our clients understand it and to the extent possible can understand, you know, what the meetings and high-level policy developments that are happening now, what that's going to lead to coming down the pike. Because if you kind of understand the system and how it works, then you can be a little bit more sort of forward looking. And so we, myself and my two partners saw, you know, that's how we thought about China. We didn't see our own firms doing it that well. And so we decided to kind of strike out on our own. And that's what we do is we advise both multinational companies and investors on how to think about China, particularly from a, a policy point of view. But that really is a political, economic, uh, and, and policy. We bring all three of those elements into everything we do. And one of the one of the public facing pieces that we do is this daily newsletter that you mentioned where we just we try to in a very concise to the extent possible snappy fashion every day we send out a note that you know covers the the main development developments in china um every single day and it was sort of inspired by these tip sheets that you get in in dc right around political developments what's driving the day what's happening what's happening on the hill what's happening in the white house and we said well, we think we can just do that for China. And so we send it out every day. We try to keep it, you know, you can read it in three minutes and basically be caught up on the big developments. And yeah, I think, you know, it's really what informs our the ethos behind that is, again, that China is not a black box. It might be a gray box, but we can cover China in a more straightforward way and explain 
developments here instead of looking sort of everything through an ideological lens or a, a Western lens, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually surprising to hear you say that you know that people do treat it as a black box. I mean, I guess I guess it's prob- you know it kind of reveals a bit of my own bias, but I mean, China is definitely understandable. Uh, it just it just takes it takes a lot of work, right? right? Totally. Well, and I mean, you know that because you're on the ground and you guys do great work looking at that deep on the ground development, the, those deep on the ground developments that are happening. And I think there's sort of a I mean, we kind of feel like there's a new generation of China Watcher, really, that's emerging right now that does kind of understand that and and does kind of dive deeply into very um, minute details to try to build a picture of what's happening, whether it's in the tech scene or a various industry or the political space. space. And obviously, there are some elements of China, like the elite politics side, where it still is a black box and we and we know very little. But in general, there's just so much information out there. So typically what we say to our clients is, listen, there's, there's nothing proprietary about what we do. We just spend a lot of time you know, reading you know, primary source documents in Chinese and sort of explaining them and how they fit together. But the reality is a lot of people, you know, they just don't have time to do that. They don't read government documents, even if they're in English, let alone if they're in Chinese. So you know, there's no real secret sauce. Uh, it's just a matter of kind of doing, putting in the elbow grease to to put it all together. Yeah, and I would say that I mean, you know, I've I've made this point elsewhere, but I think that now is actually a pretty good time to be doing something like that. Um, you know, there's there's actually a lot of information uh, out there totally. about what the Chinese government is doing and about their policies. Um, it, but it does take a little bit, but it is a bit of a puzzle in a certain sense, mm-hmm. where you do have to kind of take disparate uh, sources of information that aren't on the surface, so they're not like directly connected or they're not like whoever's presenting the information they're not making that direct connection but there is definitely you know in the background if you kind of understand it that there is this connection between them and you can kind of tease out uh certain movements or or certain um policy positions that haven't been quite explicated yet totally but yeah, so actually, what we wanted to talk about, I think this is, and it's absolutely perfect for you, is about um, you know kind of the role of government and the current state of the peer-to-peer lending market. So first of all, can you just give us like an overview of what the peer-to-peer market actually is? Like, who are these companies, and who are they actually lending to? Yeah, so um, peer-to-peer lending is basically. I think the the way I think about it, the most the simplest way to think about it for me is it's a part of the shadow banking system in China. Then, in in other words, the non traditional or less well regulated part of China's financial system, and that understanding that leads to a couple of things. One is that you know a there's less regulation here, but b the, there's a reason that shadow banking, particularly in China, but any economy crops up and it's because there are certain segments of the population or the economy that are not being properly financed through traditional channels, right? So the P2P lending ecosystem, along with shadow banking in general, really started to crop up in 2012. And that was because at that time, really economically, the economy was going through a significant slowdown and a lot of people were in need of of new financing that they couldn't get from the formal banking system. And so obviously this is a market response that people saw, okay, we can we can offer financing. And basically what it is, these are platforms that pool together cash from a lot of different, basically individuals who want to make a higher return than just like putting their money in, the, in a bank account or you know, trying to bet on the stock market, which is famously volatile in China. So it's small, small individual folks who basically give their cash to this platform that then connects them with another either individual or small business that needs financing. You know, in the best case scenario, when it works well, the people who are investing their money um, or putting their money into the platform have a specific set of criteria in terms of like the the amount of risk they want to take on, the size of any given loan they want to make to any one person, the you know the 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 size of the return they want to get, which obviously the higher the return, the more risk you're taking on. And so you sort of the platforms are supposed to build a p- profile of the investors and basically match investors with the borrowers who also have profiles. This is the kind of 
small business I run. Maybe I'm a fruit seller in Jiangxi or something. Uh, and they they basically play the role of middlemen. Um, now in in China, it's um, yeah, we're going to talk about this. The regulations moving very fast. So actually, since 2014, it's sort of been illegal to to actually pool investor funds like that. And so the P2P uh, funds have kind of positioned themselves just as matchmakers, not really overseeing the cash. But it's been clear that for the past now five years, they've kind of been operating in a in a regulatory gray space. And in China, that's fine until it isn't. We'll talk about this, but over the past several years, uh, regulators said, well, we've got this huge you know, area of lending that's happening in the shadow banking market that's totally unregulated and we have to start regulating it. Once you start regulating it, you know, there's a there's usually a big consolidation of the industry and and you see companies fail because they don't have the capabilities or the capital cushions or whatever to match the more stringent regulations. And that's basically um, the process that we're going through right now. Right. So for like for the listeners who are less familiar with uh, peer-to-peer lending, you know, what are the actual models that these companies are using to to generate profit and revenue from from this system? If they're just matchmaking, how are they extracting value, or is there different models going on? Right. Well, you know, it's it's sort of like a bank, where um, it is the simplest way to think about it is by giving your money to the bank, you're getting a return because that bank is then lending on to you know, it's borrowers, but the bank's taking a cut for basically holding the cash and for making the match. And that's basically what these guys do as well, um, right? So they buy, uh, again, they try to, to convince regulators that they're not really pooling the cash and overseeing it, but they are, they're just getting effectively a middleman cut by going and doing the the research, especially on the borrowing side. And again, this is sort of in the best case scenario. A lot of these firms are highly speculative and just, you know, there was no actual uh, <laughs> profit or business strategy. They were basically Ponzi schemes, but we can get to that later. But in the best case scenario, what you're doing as an investor is you're saying basically, you know, I want a 7% return on this. 50,000 RMB and the, the P2P platform will say, okay, well, I will, you know, I'll get you a 7% return, but I'm going to have to actually make a loan for 9% because I need 2% to go out there and find the right borrower for, for, for you. And so they go out and, um, in, again, in the best case scenario, do some due diligence in terms of looking at a company's books, a borrower's books, cash flow, profit, assets, all these things, and determine creditworthiness, and then you know, in the, and then create a loan. Um, so it's really they're taking a cut. It's it's effectively like a, a bank. But this then gets to the the issue that we're going to talk about is banks are well regulated and they're required to have extra capital cushions and do various things. And P two P lenders, since they were operating in the shadows in the shadow banking market, didn't have any of those regulatory requirements, and so they often made really bad loans. But this is this is kind of where you know my my surprise really really kicks in, you know, because like so for example with cryptocurrencies, uh, the government moved relatively quickly to ban them completely. Mining is still tolerated up 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 to this day with some of the more more significant miners in the entire world coming from China, both for uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and, and Ethereum. But you know, ICOs, cryptocurrency, all this stuff is completely off the table. And one of the one of the big reasons, kind of the the accepted uh, narrative for for that right now, is a lot of it had to do with volatility and and you know the the, the number of scams that that were possible to uh, to create the amount of money that it would have been to it, how how much money it, how easy it would have been to scam people out of money. But then of course you know if people are trading you know on even on exchanges outside of China and and you know it, how easy it would have been to to lose their shirts. And there there are some other considerations um, for banning cryptocurrency, which is also capital flight. But one of the big ones is is a lot of it had to do with volatility. And so you take that, I mean how 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 fast they moved against it, but then with with peer to peer, I mean, you know, number one, it's not exactly peer to peer. Number two, it just seems the room the the, the 
the room available for fraud is just so large. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and if and if I'm making seven percent, someone else is paying nine percent on a loan. I mean, that that's that sounds like just as bad as you know payday loans back in the states, which is basically predatory. So this is this is kind of my question is like. Why Why did, did the government tolerate it in the first place? Great question. So it, the crypto one's an, a really good uh, comparison. But I'd say on the crypto side, what was so unnerving for the Chinese authorities was the total lack of control that they had over it, A. And B, the fact that people were using Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies to get money out of China, Right. And so one of the biggest vulnerabilities generally for China is if money starts flowing out at a rapid pace, then they're in big trouble, which is why they try to hold very tight control over the capital, what they call the capital account, which is moving moving money effectively in and out of, of China. So that was one reason why they came in so hard you know, over the past few years on crypto was because they had a capital outflow problem already. Uh, in general, and then they saw crypto being a p- key part of that, and so they said, "We have to stop this." P two P lending, there were totally all those issues are, were were relevant. Them, um, you know, the the scope for fraud and all these things was there forever, but there was never really a systemic risk from P two P lending. It, it and and it definitely didn't involve getting money out of China, which is really the one of the key systemic vulnerabilities of you know of any economy. And so I think that's what kind of gave P2P lending a little bit more um, leeway. Secondly, even though there was a ton of fraud, there was actually, you know, there's a bit, there was a regulatory debate about is shadow banking good or bad? And like the regulators actually know that the formal banking system isn't good at getting money to small businesses. And so this is actually a big issue that they're trying to address right now. So the P2P lending space at least was, you know, it was helping to finance small businesses that otherwise basically had no chance of getting capital whatsoever. So there was an element of, of it was, this market was servicing uh, individuals who needed cash who otherwise couldn't get it. So, and it was doing so in a relatively market-driven way. So that was also a reason that, uh, you know, it was kind of let to, let to continue. Third, I guess the third kind of thing is even though it's a huge industry and it grew, grew very fast, it was very small comparison to the size of China's economy. So, you know, people look at any kind of industry that props up and they say, oh, you know, 500 billion, a trillion renminbi. Well, you know, the banking system's like 260, 270 trillion renminbi. So, you know, you're talking about even if you get to a trillion renminbi, <laughs> you're less than, much less than 1%, half of 1% of the system. So P2P lending, even though it's huge, still isn't systemic. So that was another reason why, or at least it wasn't seen as systemic for many years. Another reason why they gave it legs. And finally, Chinese regulators only recently, and this is a big push on the P2P side, have really taken on the notion of consumer protection. And so there was really no regulatory thinking or advancement around consumer protection until recently. And now they see that people are getting burned and that eventually, you know, through a lot of this shakeout has led to social issues, people protesting. And once you get to that stage, then the Chinese government obviously takes, you know, takes notice. And so there's a big push in China right now for better consumer protection in order, you know, to to uh, to make sure that people <laughs> don't go protest when things go badly and so that they you know the average citizen sees the government as on their side and so all of those things kind of gave p2p lending more of a, a runway than something like crypto where it was clear that it could cause an immediate vulnerability to the system mm, okay that all makes sense uh, one of the companies that we now, wanted to focus on in this episode in particular was uh, Dean Rong. Uh, maybe talk a bit more about them. You know, what's their positioning and and how how are they different from the other uh, peers in this in this peer to peer market? Yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons that they're different is they are one of the biggest, and they actually are one of the better ones. They seem to be reasonably well run. They were, you know, started in 2012 by 
the guys who started the lending club in the States. So it was like a business that had sort of a track record um, and they sort of understood best practices. And, you know, they're kind of getting caught up in this broader crackdown, not only on the sector, but on the financial system in general. But in general, they they actually did have a, and do have a pretty good business model. And compared to others, it's just the scale and the really professionalism that they have <laughs> that kind of differentiates them. And I'm not, you know, I have no interest in the company whatsoever. So I'm not, you know, saying that to pump them up or defend them or anything. But yeah, they they have more of a track record. They understood the industry. They're bigger generally like actually function as an ongoing concern, an actual peer to peer lending facility. Whereas, you know, they, they, you know, my guess is they probably had some individuals operating in some of the more uh, speculative parts of the market, but in general, they were not as speculative as some of the, the smaller firms. Yeah. Lending club was actually one of the early, early movers on this on this whole sort of concept really in the states right is my understanding yeah that's also my understanding i'm not really i mean it's i focus so much on china that i rarely have an idea what's happening in the rest of the world but i i believe that's right and you know these guys um brought that model to china also early on very much at the at the forefront so their their timing i think at that time was was pretty savvy to, in terms of their jumping into the Chinese market, but then you know, I think that then then how do we how do we explain some of some of their troubles? And kind of going back to you know a point that 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 you made previously about protests and stuff like that. I mean, you know, with 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 the collapse of peer to peer companies, people, I mean, like like myself actually, you know, we're we're having trouble getting money out. Uh, and and speci- specifically with Dianrong, you know, we've um, we've we've had money uh, in in and out of Dianrong for the last two years or so, and then and then and then over the last uh, four to six months, it's been very difficult to take money out. And so basically, they won't give us all of our money back. They'll get they'll give it out like in in very very slowly, like a hundred RMB here, a hundred RMB there, or something like that. But you know, we're talking like a, not a small amount of money. Uh, our money, my family's money, is is in. Is inside the Enron, and so it's one of those things where, you know, so the government wants to prevent protests, but then if they if they clamp down on peer to peer, isn't that going to create create more problems? Definitely. So this is one of those issues where the regulators have been behind, right? So like I said, they were letting these these companies operate in the shadows, kind of aware of them, but not doing anything. But then when the regulators take notice and start building in these regulations, it does start to hurt the businesses, right? And actually only the best survive. And so, you know, you've seen the industry go from, what, four to almost 5,000 down to just over 1,000 now in the past, I think since 2016. And it halved just over the last year. So it was like 2,400 or something like that, January 2018. And now you're just over 1,000. So... You know, it's kind of one of those where in, uh, like if you look at the, you know, global financial crisis, no one feels glad that they were banking with the least bad bank or no one feels good that they were, sorry, uh, banking with the least bad bank. All the banks were doing bad stuff and got caught up in it, right? And P2P lending by its nature is quite speculative. So even if Dan, Dan Rong is like the best of the worst, like, they're they're gonna ha- they're gonna be dealing with these issues, right? And it's better to get your money out slowly than to definitely never get your money back at all. So it's not to downplay the issue by any means, but the fact that they're still surviving at all in such an intense market shakeout is you know definitely noteworthy. And uh, you know I would just say the the the, the express intent behind the regulations is to make sure that only the biggest ones and most capable ones can survive. So that sort of leaves you with a picture of, you know, obviously a company that's struggling structurally. And I think, you know, there, there may be some more direct, um, you know, company-specific issues that are causing them cash flow problems as well. But they are caught up in this, you know, they literally, the regulators refer to this whole thing as the financial regulatory storm. 
And Deanne Rong is definitely caught up in it. And that's obviously, you know, affecting their clients. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the government's efforts is to change the mentality of investors to, to assess risk a little bit more carefully. Um, because, you know, a lot of the sales practices of these companies were hugely fraudulent or egregious. So again, not defending Dian Rong in any way, but um, the fact that surviving the regulatory storm at least is is indicative of of some level of strength vis a vis the you know thousands of other companies that have gone bust. So, so can you talk a little bit about what some of those sales practices were, just to give us a, an idea of what the industry was like in kind of what the government was trying to deal with? Yeah, I think the basic is the ba- the fundamental issue is that most of these products are characterized as guaranteed uh, as a is a a guaranteed return in terms of the interest guaranteed that you'll get your money back so if i go to if no one <laughs> if anyone ever comes to you and says i will give you 9% return over the next year guaranteed you should never believe them because that you can't guarantee a specific return because you know asset prices move, loans go bad, um, and so a just the fact of guaranteeing a specific return is bad enough. But then, like sort of giving a wink and a nod that the product itself will be bailed out if anything goes badly is also a, a sort of you know it's moral hazard. It's what um, it's the by definite the very definition of moral hazard. And so I think you know that was that was the fundamental issue. And you know, for the really speculative ones, I think they were both misrepresenting who the money was being given to. So maybe you thought you were lending to a mom and pop bakery or something, but actually your money was in a real estate project, a highly speculative commercial real estate project in some fourth tier city. Those issues, those were issues, and then in the most most egregious cases, these were just literally Ponzi schemes where you're just getting new money to pay off the previous investors. Well, it sounds like a total mess to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, and this is why. I mean, this is why the the new regulations are needed. This is what happens when you have a totally unregulated financial system. And again, it was serving a certain need. But it was totally unregulated, so it was not healthy by any means. And when you start to regulate an area that's unregulated, at first it just exacerbates everything. And the regulators' hope is that eventually they get to a healthier, long-term, stable market that you know where the rules are clear, where the platforms do have you know uh, capital cushions and all these things. But to get from here to there, there's going to be a lot more people who lose money. But even without like specific industry regulation, surely outright lying about what the what the consumer is actually purchasing would still be a crime, and you would still, you know, be able to act upon that if you, as a as a consumer, bought a product as you just described, thinking it was lending money to someone else, and finding out later it was in a in, in property speculation, uh, you know, a highly speculative property investment. Would that necessarily need specific industry regulation in order to be to be covered? Surely, general general law would would, would cover something like that. No, so, so that's right. Well, actually, so a few things. One is when you're operating in a regulatory gray space, it's not clear which laws and regulations apply to you. Secondly, you know, then it's incumbent on you know the the whole nature of uh, of these platforms is they're having small time investors, you know pool their cash. So you then have to have someone running point to organize that group of people to have them go to the police or go to the courts and make their claim and make their case. Um, So definitely a lot of this stuff was illegal and I think could have been and was prosecuted, whether through the courts or otherwise. But, you know, there's also the issue of, you know, a lot of these platforms, the person just disappears like a lot we we focus on this as an internet thing but a lot of these are really sort of brick and mortar stores where you're dealing with an individual you you literally give them cash and then those people end up absconding so you know if you can't find someone you can't prosecute them but more generally i think what the regulators are doing now is not just saying like 
it's illegal to do illegal things. But they're also saying like, you need to have a certain amount of your money put aside so that even if you're doing everything right, if one of the loans goes bad, you've got the, the money to, to cover that. That's the whole point of having a capital cushion for any financial institution is if a loan goes bad, you still have to, you know, at least give a certain amount of principal often to, you know, the saver or the investor. So I think that's also you want to make sure that if one loan goes bad, it doesn't bring down the whole company. Right. So those are the kinds of things like just generally trying to make the individual companies themselves safer beyond just saying like the illegal stuff that you're doing is illegal, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So I guess kind of coming back to, to Dianrong for a second, I mean, so if, if, let's just, let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, assume that they are the, the best, the best of the worst. Um, but at the same time, you know, you look at over the last year or so, they've had some, some really interesting changes in their executive team. So for example, uh, Sol Hittite, uh, who's the co-founder and was the CEO, uh, was moved to executive chairman. Uh, their CTO, who actually we've had on this podcast previously, uh, Ling Kong, he's he's gone. And I just found out, um, just they, they didn't obviously they didn't make any announcement about this, but I just found out uh, a few months ago that their CMO. Um, had left and it has been gone for at least six months. So this is kind of like you know when 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 you when you have like C level executives. So okay, Seoul hasn't left, but he's moved to executive chairman. I mean, the first question is like why? Why did he move from CEO to executive chairman? What would be the reason behind that? And then you know you look at other C level people. They're they're leaving. I mean, what does that say about their their business? Yeah, they're in trouble for sure. I mean, this is not a this is not a a space you want to be in right now. You're literally fighting for survival. And so, um, you know, I'm not an expert on Dianrong itself. So can't, you know, I, you know, you guys know more about the the specifics of the company than, than I do. So again, I'm not, I definitely don't want to be in a, in a position of defending them. I'm like, I wouldn't want to be in that industry. I wouldn't want to be at that company right now. I'm sure, like, again, you compare it to, you know, the the global financial crisis. You didn't end up getting a lot of executives being, uh, no one was thrown in jail, but, you know, some folks were at least removed from their position. And definitely, like, the both the regulatory apparatus and the public often calls for these things, right? The Wells Fargo CEO recently had to leave for, for these issues, so the company is certainly struggling from a structural standpoint. Um, you know whether or not there were, whether or not they made these moves to appease regulators or appease their board or their shareholders. You know, I'm not sure about that, but I, you know, it's certainly indicative of a company that is facing big challenges. Um, and so, you know, what does it mean that their CMO left? Who knows? I mean, you know, they they are fundamentally changing a lot of their business model, right? So they were heavily, heavily focused on offline. I think like 70% of assets, something like that was, were offline, not online. So they, and, and that in particular is what regulators have really focused on trying to shut down because they feel like they have, ironically almost, they, they can see more into the online lending space than they can into these physical markets where you go in to an actual branch and and put money put money up and you you know the 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 loan interviews are done there you know that takes an army of people to oversee from a regulatory standpoint so they're from in terms of the CMO this is just a guess but you know they're radically changing their business model if his if the chief marketing officer was all about kind of pushing these physical stores these online branches and that was where they were marketing most of their products and now they're closing a bunch of those down it would make sense that that guy left, either was kicked out or, or left, because they're not marketing in that way now. Or I mean, they may, they may still be, but that's not the, the where they're focused now. They're trying to to shift to to really slim down their offline presence, and from what I understand, focus more on the online. Interesting. So the offline stores, you know, when we, we say Dean runs on like offline stores, these are just little loan offices i assume right like in in uh, and they they're targeting like people who wouldn't usually be 
be savvy enough to find them online and use their app to 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 download. So maybe older people would that be would that be the strategy yeah. there? Yeah, definitely. So I mean, you know, it's I, I think um, a lot of times this is sort of uh, it'll be families who are sort of pulling together money. It's very often you know older people who. You know who has all the savings in China? It's the older generation. They're the ones sitting on tons of cash because of you know the economic volatility that they saw throughout their lifetimes. They're not gonna. They don't have a pension. You know they're they're probably trying to save for their granddaughter or grandson's wedding. They're trying to save to buy their kid or their or their grandkid a, a an apartment. You, you know this that's how it sort of the family structure works in China. So they've got all this money, and you know if you put it in the bank. You're making a negative real return on it after inflation. You know they may not want to put it in the stock market again because of the volatility. They may or may not be able to put it in the real estate market. Currently, the real estate market's not doing very well. So you go to somebody who you presumably trust, and and you say, well, yeah, seven percent, nine percent, whatever return sounds good, and here's fifty thousand RMB. So yeah, it's very mom and pop folks, but very much. Uh, geared towards the older generation, who is who are the ones that are uh, that have this pile of cash that needs to see some kind of return. No, that's so true in my experience as well. Uh, I, I will attest to that. You know, old Chinese people, lots of them have so much money stored away. It's quite you know, like people who don't look like they have a lot of money. <laughs> they actually do have way, they got way more money than you have, but they just never spend a penny of it. Um, so yeah, I, I, it really is like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, 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 if you go through the yeah, if you go through the cultural revolution, <laughs> then you're like I all bets are off. I'm gonna cash is king, <laughs> and that's I think been the mentality of a lot of uh, these individuals for sure. Sure, but at the same time, I feel these people are also some of the most vulnerable people in society to to uh, you know things like Ponzi schemes and and uh, bad practices like we've been uh, discussing previously. Totally, and you know, I had a conversation with my Chinese colleague about this, so I you know. Kind of, there's a from a cultural standpoint. I always, you know, am a little bit reticent to weigh in on cultural explanations of things. But you know, my understanding is, you know, that the the older generation really buys into this moral hazard and believes that any investment it's it makes is effectively backstopped by the government because th- their life experience was that the government was sort of in charge of taking care of them at every stage of their life for providing employment, for providing housing. And so there's sort of this implicit, you know, societal compact that says the government's gonna gonna backstop everything. And so the P2P lenders were able to sort of really play on that mentality, which said, you know, we which made a a nine percent return or whatever feel a lot less risky than it should be. And so that mentality is, um, from my understanding, is quite ingrained in some of the more you know, elderly generation. So, I mean, I want to look at, uh, kind of go, go, go in a different direction uh, and look at the role of technology in, in, in peer-to-peer lending. I mean, so, um, and it's not just peer-to-peer lending as well. A lot of the, the current, like there's, there's there, you know, uh, JD does it, Alibaba does it, and then, then there's some companies that, uh, that have sprung up specifically around uh, installment payments, like e-commerce installment payments, basically. Um, there's, there's a few companies that, that, that come to mind, uh, Lessian Fintech, uh, Pintech, uh, and there's one more that I can't I can't recall the name, but you know all of these companies and even Dianrong, you know when we had their CTO on, uh, one of the things that he talked about a lot was the role of technology in 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 risk assessment, and so you know and that's that's kind of like the 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 big question. I mean, like what role has technology, you know, AI, big data played in in risk assessment, and do we have any reason to believe that that peer to peer companies or these installment uh, companies are actually doing a good job with these technologies? So we're we're really it's hard to say because we're at the beginning of that phase, right? Where it's now well recognized even among the regulatory apparatus that technology fintech um you know which means everything and nothing kind of at the same time is going to be the way to solve this problem and fundamentally right now 
China, <laughs> the Chinese financial system in particular, is not good at risk assessment, at re- assessing credit risk in particular. They, they don't have consumer profiles. They don't have FICO scores. All of that stuff that, you know, we all know about in the West or, you know, in the, in speaking at least to the U.S. Um, uh, experience that has been built up over decades that doesn't exist. And so as a quick aside, sort of the way the banking system works is that the way they assess, they, they don't really assess credit risk. What they do is they work on collateral. So if you come to them and you say, you see that big building, I own it. Here's the deed. Give me a loan. If I don't pay the loan, you can have the building. And so, or a piece of land or whatever. And so that's why the banking system is so heavily geared towards lending to SOEs because SOEs have collateral. What that leaves everyone else, all the small private businesses and, and individuals who want money, it, it means that the banks won't lend to them. And that's again, kind of going back to why P2P cropped up in the first place. That's starting to change, and there's now an investment in terms of understanding. There's now so much data out there around people's behavior online, around people's spending habits, around their incomes, or uh, their ability to to service debt. That companies are trying to wrap their heads around it and and create a model that will assess risk. But those models are just now being created, so we don't know how good or bad they are, and it'll be you know a decade before we can can really figure it out. And this just kind of what it goes back to is, you know, China really, it kind of likes big things and big companies and it wants to set regulatory requirements that that keep the small players out because the small players are often the risky ones. And the reality is it is going to be the Alibabas of the world that have the, the, the own the data sets that are large enough and accurate enough to figure out what people's credit should look like or credit scores should look like. And they're obviously starting to do that with things like Sesame Credit. So there's a lot of investment in it. I think it's still too early to say how well they're doing it because we have, we don't know. And, and the system's still being, being built, but from the regulatory side, they're also investing heavily in, in these things and they're trying to partner with the tech giants and they're investing in blockchain and all these other financial technologies to try to 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 make sure the government's a part of it but we're still so at the early stages that it's hard to say exactly who's going to be doing it well and not but what i will say again focusing on the regulatory side because that's kind of where we look the most is that regulators are really worried that they are not going to be up to snuff that they're going to be behind the curve and they probably will be, right? So, I mean, this is how markets work. The markets go out and get ahead of regulators. Regulators try to pull them back, and then markets go out on another direction. And so, the you know, they've they've created a leading small group uh, that's run by Pan Gongsheng, who is the vice governor of the central bank, and it's all about internet uh, financing and trying to make sure that the regulatory apparatus stays up with all the investment um, that's taking place uh, to try to to get, um, you know, to assess credit, use big data and AI to, to figure out who deserves loans and those things. And ultimately, if it works, it's going to make the economy and the financial system actually much more efficient, right? Because it gets resources to, to resource-worthy places, to, to, to places that are more productive. But right now, it's just like very early days. And so hard to say who's doing better or worse. Yeah, I, I have one more question. The final question is, uh, but you, you can go ahead with it, John, I think. So, so Andrew, I guess as a way to kind of wrap things up, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't the first time that we've seen a, a wave of, of closures in, in the peer-to-peer uh, lending space, as you alluded to earlier. But, you know, we've, we, we still see that, that some have survived and that even though some are doing, some, and, and the ones that have survived even aren't, aren't doing very well now, um, so I guess the big question is, you know, can we expect another comeback? I mean, can we expect that the government is going to loosen things up and 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 actually that 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 we will have companies that can survive uh, this kind of uh, regulatory tightening? I mean, you know, is is there a future for for peer to peer lending in China? Yeah, I think so. I just don't think we'll ever get back to the really heady slash crazy days of you know twenty fourteen twenty fifteen. The last, and I think. 
the the argument for that is that the the washout last time around was very different than the washout this time around. The washout last time, sort of 2015, 2016, was really around the economy not doing well. So so the economy turned down in 2012. Then then you know they. Uh, Policy was loosened. Shadow banking opened up. That's when we really saw the market flourish. The economy turns down again in 2015, and that's when you get a washout because you know when the economy goes bad, people can't pay their loans. P2P platforms go bust. This time around, um, so the sort of 2018 uh, push has really been regulatory driven. It's been about more broadly de-risking the financial system. It's been about putting putting permanent more um, you know, predictable rules in place um, for the financial system in general, but peer-to-peer lending in particular. And so that's that's a sort of sea change in how the 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 industry is going to be regulated. And so we'll never go. It, it, so the reason, the different reason for this shakeout is more of a permanent reason. So I do think ultimately. The, the industry will probably see some of a comeback, but you not to, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 or whatever it was uh, entities. Maybe we get back to 2,000 and, you know, there is a place for them to, to, to funnel money into the financial sector and, or excuse me, into the, into small and medium sized enterprises. And, you know, the government looks on them potentially even favorably because they are helping to achieve that goal, which is a very high level goal right now to, to get money to private businesses and small and medium enterprises. So I think there's scope for a comeback, but it's not going to be anything like we we saw um, in terms of the proliferation and the, the craziness that they're doing. So we might, we're definitely in an ebb. We'll see a little bit of a flow, but the flow will not be, not be um, a 2014 kind of peak P2P. We're, we'll, I'll say this, we're past peak P2P. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, well, Andrew. Um, again, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if if people want to to find you online, where where can they do that? So our website's triviumchina.com. Uh, check us. Check out our website and go there and sign up for the daily newsletter we talked about. Um, totally free. Uh, get a quick dose of China politics, uh, policy, and economics every day. Uh, TriviumChina.com.